Hello and welcome to January's Archivist feature from Archives of Disease in Childhood. In Archivist this month, um, we feature two very different papers. The first one deals with the use of epinephrine, uh, more often in the UK called adrenaline, um, as a treatment after paediatric cardiac arrest. Now, as we know in paediatrics, cardiac arrest is very different to adult arrests. There has been quite a lot of work done on outcomes in adult arrest, but much less in paediatrics. It's quite wrong to extrapolate that uh, because we know that adrenaline is good for adults, that it's good for children. However, in spite of the lack of evidence um, on the acute life support courses that we all have to attend and on all the um, literature that trainees are given on what to do in cardiac arrest, adrenaline or epinephrine has a very prominent place. The research base for these sorts of interventions always has been pretty weak. Obviously it's difficult to do research uh, in this area because, because of issues of consent and doing uh, blinded randomized controls, controlled trials is extremely difficult. The causes of cardiac arrest, of course, in children are very different to adults. They're much less likely to be cardiac in origin. They're much less likely to involve a shockable cardiac rhythm, and they occur in different settings. Now, in the United States, the American Heart Association has a registry that's known as the Get With The Guidelines Resuscitation Registry, and they've reported their outcome from a whole, across the whole of the United States in data from paediatric cardiac arrests in hospital. Uh, this was between 2000 and 2014, so it covers quite a long period. They uh, looked at f- over 1,500 patients um, under 18 years, but not delivery room arrests, although some were neonates. Uh, many of them were already in intensive care units. Overall, from the whole group, the survival to hospital discharge was 31%. The longer the time between the cardiac arrest being noted and the first dose of epinephrine was associated with a significantly decreased chance of survival. And in fact, they were able to quantify the decreased risk of survival per minute of delay. If the delay was longer than five minutes, they had a significantly lower chance of survival 21% versus 33%, and this was statistically significant. As well as survival, they looked at adverse neurological outcomes, and they developed their own grading of um, impairment at the time the child, when they survived, was discharged from hospital. And again, they found that delayed adrenaline administration was positively correlated uh, with poor neurological outcomes at discharge from hospital. Now, this wasn't a randomised controlled trial, so it's quite possible that those who received it early may have differed in some way from those who received it late. Um, for example, the, uh, the ones who received adrenaline late may have arrested in different settings and may have had different pathology, but we're really never going to get any better evidence than this because a proper RCT uh, would be probably unethical and almost impossible to do. So the impression that we're given in our resuscitation training that giving adrenaline early is probably the single most valuable drug intervention does appear to be confirmed from this and it should remain in our protocols. The other paper featured um, in Archivist relates to the difficult issue of um, pets, particularly dogs, and asthma. There are two conflicting issues here. 
um, which lead different professionals to give completely different advice to families. Firstly, the hygiene hypothesis, which although it's been questioned in recent years, um, continues to uh, persuade some people that early exposure to animals and possible low-grade infections in very young children might actually confer some resistance to to allergic disease and asthma in later life. This um, theory has been around for a long time and may explain why with cleaner houses and less exposure to animals these problems are getting more common. However, the allergen exposure um, relating to animals might, on the other hand, make the problem worse. Now, in the Scandinavian countries they have huge databases covering almost everything and so they can link things that you wouldn't normally expect to link. In Sweden, they use national databases that cover diagnoses, prescribing of things such as asthma medications, dog ownership, and parents' occupations, such as farm work, and they can all be linked together uni using unique numbers, which gives a very valuable opportunity. And they can do this for the entire country. So for this study, published in JAMA Pediatrics, the researchers looked at over a million children born in Sweden between 2001 and 2010, and uh, they divided them into preschool and school age groups because they thought they might be different. They had pretty robust definitions of asthma where they they'd been assessed in a clinical hospital and they'd actually had prescriptions for anti-asthma drugs given. And this could be reported at any age uh, for the preschoolers and at age seven for the older children at a fixed point. They could also uh, correlate this with the dog registration, which is compulsory in Sweden, and also the parents' occupation. So the outcome was that actually surprisingly few, um, uh, compared to the UK anyway, were actually exposed to dogs. So 8% of the school-aged children were exposed to dogs and 4% of these had asthma. Dog exposure in the first year of life was associated with significantly decreased risk of asthma at age 7. And of the preschool group, again, 8% were exposed to dogs and 5% had asthma. They also had a decreased risk, but only for the slightly older children above 3 years of age. Farm animal exposure, which was much fewer than the dog exposure, was imputed from parental occupation and applied to only 0.4%, so a tiny proportion. But because it covered the entire population, they were able to get some significant results. Uh, the observed decrease in asthma risk was even greater than it was for the dog owners. And again, this applied both, for, both to the school age group and to the uh, preschoolers. Now, this doesn't prove cause and effect, and there are many other potential confounders, although the authors did try to address this because they had a lot of data that, uh, were, that contained possible confounders that they could address for. Most importantly, parental asthma might have decided whether a family gets a dog or not, but they were able to allow for this and it made no difference. Also, whether it's the firstborn or not is known to affect um, atopic outcomes, but it made it, it repeated the analysis looking at only firstborn children. They found the same um, association. They also allowed for socioeconomic factors, and this made no difference. So, although there were some weaknesses with this study, and it wasn't entirely clear whether those families that registered a dog actually had one in the house because it might have died, it, these are unlikely to affect the overall conclusion. So, in conclusion, these authors think that the early exposure to organisms possibly coming from the animals in the home or in the child's environment might directly influence sensitivity to allergens later in life. I wondered whether in fact it's actually the allergens themselves as much as the microorganisms as we've seen in some studies of food allergy such as uh, recent studies on peanut exposure might in some way protect the child as well.
So, should we now recommend to parents of our asthmatic children that they get a dog? Perhaps not yet, but it probably isn't worth telling them all to get rid of the dog just on the basis of this study. Thank you for listening. Thank you.